There was one lyric in this uh, last song that we sang. That third verse, I will gaze upon God alone and trust in Him completely. I don't know that we can all sing that in honesty all the time, can we? I don't think that what Jeremiah has been dealing with uh, in the, this past in this third chapter of his lament uh, expresses that the human heart has a frame that does trust in the Lord completely. At, at times, there, uh, when we go through suffering, it's often that we find new strands and new veins of where we're trusting in ourselves, in our own ability, in our own thought processes, and so. It's a wonderful encouragement to have those lyrics before us, though, as a reminder that we should be continually trusting in the Lord alone. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, in verse 18 of, of chapter 3 of this lament, uh, we, found, we found Jeremiah in a place where he declares honestly, my endurance had perished. So has my hope from the Lord. He was being honest that he is in his frame and all that he was experiencing in seeing the destruction of Jerusalem and really ultimately the destruction of the people of God as a gathered uh, people. He, he seemingly, his faith had, had vanished. And yet he turns and pivots in what we were looking at last week in verses 22 through 24 and acknowledges that the only reason why his faith didn't fail completely and finally is because, in fact, he did set his eyes upon the Lord. And he says, "...the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will put my hope in Him. And one thing that we saw clearly last week is that the new morning mercies of God come to the people of God in very peculiar ways. Um, we thought through the immediate context of, of what he is talking about in these mercies in this context was really meager things of life. That it could be uh, seeing someone finding merely a piece of bread or taking a drink of water or finding a scrap of clothing. Uh, that, that, the, that Jeremiah here is considering the, the, the suffering of the nation and then finding little ways to anchor his heart in the mercies of God knowing that God has not finally neglected His people. God's mercy uh, is often in the mind of the average person something of suffering. God gives us over to suffering that we might find Him to be merciful. And it's then and only then that we turn from the things of this world to trusting in the Lord completely. We learn, in fact, by the new mercies of the living God to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Jeremiah has been pleading with us here passionately. He's been laying before us the reality that the nation has been subjected to the wrath of God and the judgment of God because they have left the Word of God. And he's not left anything to the imagination. He has spelled out in clear terms the awful weight of what it is these people have suffered. That the city is besieged and that the young men have been carried off and that the young women are no longer singing. There's no longer joy and that even children are being cannibalized in the street. There is a visceral feeling to the weight of the text. We can't read these words and understand them without being moved, without considering, really, I think, our own lamentable context. I mean, friends, here, here, here is, if, if we read, wow, these mothers were put in a place where they resorted to the slaughter of their own children, and we think how awful it would be to live in such a society. I can't imagine that. Then we have disconnected ourselves from the current modern reality. 
Because young women are told all the time that they will starve and not have a future and not have a hope in this world if they don't slaughter their child. We really understand the weight of what Jeremiah is really lamenting spiritually. It will not bring us to a point like a Pharisee looking over the city of Jerusalem going, well, God bless these people. It will bring us to our knees in the reality of our own leaving the Word of God. Jeremiah intends for us not only to know these words, but to feel the weight of them. That we might be moved in a more godly direction. And he doesn't stop the rush of emotion at verse 36. He continues on in the verses that we will read this morning. So with that in mind, if you would do honor the reading of God's Word and stand this morning. Jeremiah here, riding under the weight of God's wrath and the Holy Spirit of Almighty God to pin these words to you and I today, beloved. Starting in verse 37, chapter 3. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It is not from the mouth of, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and Pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the people. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by, who, by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head, and I said, I am lost. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning under the weight of these words, especially verses 43-54 through that give such a graphic picture of your indignation against your people. And Father, as we hear these words and all that you have brought against your people, we know that we deserve no less. So we come today acknowledging the reality of our lostness apart from your mercy, apart from your faithfulness. God, help us not to believe and promote and participate in declarations of the gospel that land in directions where it centers upon men and our faithfulness and our good works because we know in light of your word that if our salvation rested in us, we would utterly be lost. Would you write these truths on all of our hearts? And Father, would you help us to remember that it is only you who redeem and restore. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. After declaring the faithfulness of God, our brother Jeremiah turns... And he faces a very weighty theological reality. And that is the theological reality of the absolute sovereignty of God. He's facing a nation that has slaughtered children where young men have been driven away and young women as well and the whole The whole community taken into captivity. The kings have been driven away. The priests to utter ruin. And if we were to take this particular predicament in our modern age, and we were to ask the theological minds, 
what we would find is nothing more than a theological three-ring circus. Men who would stand before the suffering of the community and instead of heralding the absolute sovereignty of God, they would turn to really robust academic arguments that would marginalize God being the ultimate cause of the suffering. But a plain reading of the text doesn't give us the latitude to stand on such platitudes. The plain reading of the text tells us that we don't have license to come to suffering people and say things like, well, God never intended this for you. You see, the fact is, beloved, we don't like suffering, and I'm in that camp. We don't like to feel the weight of the consequence of our rebellion. And so we heap up for ourselves. When, when, when Paul tells us that there's coming a day where there will, be, there, there will be those who have itching ears, and they will heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions... I think often we misunderstand what that really looks like. And what I have found in my own life of what that really looks like is it looks like sinning people who love their sin and despise the chastisement of God, finding men who will stand before them and say, you didn't deserve this suffering. God would never be behind this judgment. He would never bring this upon you. But may we praise God forever that the prophet Jeremiah is not such a man. That he, in fact, does come and he does point to the reality that God never allows innocent people to suffer. And that is, in fact, why the nation of Israel is suffering in this moment. It's why we suffer. Because there are no innocent people. Because we deserve exactly what we receive. We have seen the reality, again, of why people here are suffering. They they have gone after the world. That they have left the Word of God. They have, friends, when when we get to Genesis chapter 3, and we see the rebellion of man, The conversation about all the things that we deserve from that verse on is really over. We deserve from Genesis 3 on nothing more than destruction. And here, in these pages, is we can look on them physically at this moment and see the gracious mercy of the steadfast love of the Lord. And that is that there is more to say after Genesis chapter 3. That declares the mercy of Almighty God. That He didn't stop there and just give us what we deserved. A judgment. But rather He went on to speak a better word of redemption towards His people. And here these people have had the audacity to leave that word. And here is what the weight that you and I should feel. So have we. We have had the audacity to leave the word of God. To leave the absolute sovereignty of God being declared. I was talking to a dear sister this morning about a particular vein that ties to God's sovereignty in our salvation. And often we acknowledged in that conversation the reality is in our generation people will come to the issue of God's sovereignty in human salvation and they'll, they'll say, well, look, this has just been a contentious issue in the church and we need to... We need to just play nice. No. We need to herald the reality that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. Because His Word declares nothing less. 
Because ultimately what we find of the people of God in Lamentations and Jeremiah is that they have, in fact, for themselves heaped up false teachers. And they have built intellectually for themselves idols. And so God deals with His people, judging them righteously. And now Jeremiah turns in all of this, again, to the absolute sovereignty of God. And he shows God to be powerful over every arena on the earth. And this, for Jeremiah, just so we're clear, is not some cerebral exercise. It drives me nuts when I find brothers, and I've been this person at times, who merely, they catch the, the, the intellectual reality of God's sovereignty, but they don't let it flow through their living. They don't allow it to impact their life. Beloved, the doctrines that the Bible declares are not put before the people of God merely that we would have a greater understanding, but more that we would have a greater way of living all of our lives in doxology, giving glory to Almighty God. Our theology must turn into the worship of God. So this isn't a mere cerebral exercise. It leads to the praising of God. And is ultimately the absolute sovereignty of God here what gives the saints comfort. It is what allows them to pillow their head. Jeremiah, knowing the promises of God that these are God's people and that He has said He will build His kingdom, but seemingly the kingdom has been carried away. And so Jeremiah turns in this moment to the absolute sovereignty of God, I believe in a way, as to comfort himself and all of those who would hear, knowing that even when God brings judgment and it seems that he is done with his people, oh beloved, that is not true. He is yet about establishing a particular people for his own glory. And he's doing it not because of us, but in spite of us. And you see the reality that God is absolutely sovereign in all that comes to pass, both in our salvation and in our sanctification and in our glorification, ultimately gives us comfort here, but it doesn't just stay there as a pillow. It ultimately builds the entire choir of heaven in praising God for His being worthy of our praise in His sovereign acts. And that's what Revelation chapter 5 really tells us. As we hear these words sung in heaven, worthy as the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. God's people, when they go through suffering, have consistently Turn to the absolute sovereignty of God both as a place to rest and as a platform from which to worship. So then the question becomes, well, how does God's sovereignty apply to the life of a Christian today? And I'm glad that you asked because Jeremiah answers us in verses 37 through 39. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? The first thing that we see principially in verse 37 is that nothing happens without God's knowledge and His sanction of it. God, nothing comes to pass, not even a word here in verse 37, that God does not know about it and also sanction it also in His permissive will allow for that reality. Think about the circumstances here. The Babylonians, look back at verse 16 of chapter 2, and, and we find here in verse 16 of chapter 2, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Speaking of the city. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it 
we see it. What he's saying is, for a long time the Babylonians had threatened, they had said that they would bring judgment against the people of God. And now it's come to pass. Well, what Jeremiah is doing in verse 37 is he's saying, but wait, is it only happened because the Babylonians have declared it? Is it only happened because they have purposed to defeat our fair city? And the answer that resounds back in verse 37 is no. That they couldn't even speak that they were going to destroy our city had God not permitted them to speak those words. So surely we can rest knowing that the destruction that has befallen our fair city has not come outside of the knowledge and the sanction of Almighty God. They have done what they have done. They have said what they have said. But ultimately, it is God who is absolutely, sovereignly, unequivocally behind all of those things. But then we ask the question, why did it happen? Was it, was it their might? Was it what, their choice? What, was, it, was, was it their ability? And in a sense, yes. Friends, as Christians, we don't... We, we don't disbelieve in the reality of individual free will and moral agency. The Babylonians had brutalized the people of God and Jeremiah has told us they will pay for that. God is not morally responsible for the destruction of the city in the evil acts that were used in bringing it about. But He is the one who is sovereignly over all of it. You see, what what, what verse 37 tells us is really that God has commanded and commissioned the Babylonians to bring this to pass. Men are mere tools in the hands of Almighty God. Calvin says, God decreed before the world was made whatever He was to do. And so, there is nothing now done in the world which is not directed by His counsel. Nothing happens in our lives that escapes God. That's a joy because we know that our God is working for our redemption. So nothing falls outside of the scope of His loving providence. And we see this throughout the the Bible in different ways, especially in the Psalter, uh, in Psalm 33 It speaks of God's absolute sovereignty uh, over creation. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God spoke everything into being that is today. But also, the psalmist deals with the reality of God's absolute sovereignty over the nations in His providential ruling and reigning in Psalm 115 verses 2 and 3. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And the answer comes back to that question. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Anything that comes to pass has not escaped the knowledge and the sanction of Almighty God. And so someone will then raise up, and as often happens, and say, well, then that makes, the God, that makes God the author of evil. Well, friend, you need to understand the doctrine of divine concurrence. And that is that, that, that man acts, but parallel to the acting of man, and I would say over and above, men acting in their agency, is God superimposing His own divine will. Such that ultimately God is in control of all things, and yet man is morally responsible for the evil that he brings. God is never responsible for the the sins of men. He never delights in, He never rejoices in, and even if He allows others to sin against us, He always for His people has a redemptive purpose in mind. And all of this for the believer comes home to the heart to reassure us that no matter what falls our lot, it is all ultimately in the hands of our Redeemer King. And we we are so comforted by these words in Romans chapter 8. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. The wonderful passage... Uh, the, the purpose of this passage uh, in Romans chapter 8 is not to tell us that we are going to have our best life now and that we will never suffer under the absolute sovereignty of God. The joy of this passage is that nothing comes to pass that is not connected to what God is doing having first predestined us. And then in that predestination to having a purpose in our calling, our justification, and ultimately our glorification. You see, in the mind of the believer, the joy of the absolute sovereignty of God is this, beloved. That nothing happens to you and I that doesn't one day somehow above our finite thinking issue forth equal to come out in glory. That's the joy of Romans chapter 8. If you're suffering now, my dear friend, rejoice knowing that not a drop, not an ounce of that suffering has somehow escaped the glorious purposes of Almighty God. Now, if you want me to explain that, see me in the next lifetime. So we see that God has knowledge and sanction of all things that happen. We see also in verse 38 that it is God who orders all things. Now this isn't just repetition here. Jeremiah is making sure that we understand the reality. He takes what he has said in verse 37 and he goes further and he goes deeper. You see, it's fine, beloved, to come to the sovereignty of God and to say, well, yes, he gives us the good things. He, he calls us to salvation and, and all of the fine providences in our lives, those belong to him. But Jeremiah looks at us flat-footed today and he says, yes, but he does all of the difficult things in our lives too. The, the crooks in our lot are just as much a part of what God is doing as are the kind providences of God. There's an old saying theologically of God that He is too wise to err and too good to be unkind. In both the good and bad, He is too wise to err and He is too good to be unkind. God deals with us in such a kind and wise way that we have no reason, and this is where we're going in verse 39, to complain against Him. And yet, isn't it so often that we find complaints leveled against God? You'll remember when Job is going through his suffering in Job chapter 2, his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. God has allowed difficult things to come into your life. Curse Him for it. And do you remember what Job says to his wife? You speak as a foolish woman. It's foolish to realize that God is, is sovereignly over both the good and the bad and to curse God for it. But friends, I would tell you that is in large part what the church is doing today in its theological framework. Uh, we are no longer willing to hold on to the reality that both the good and the bad come under the absolute sovereignty of God. And then in verse 39, we are given the explicit instruction not to quarrel with God. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Again, it's interesting that the foundation of unbelief for so many people, people that would call themselves atheist or agnostic, that it comes in some sort of a theodicy or an argument that would say, well, ultimately, I don't believe in God because God, look at all the suffering on the earth. And if God were really there and He really is loving and He really is good, He would stop the suffering of men. 
It's one thing to hear those arguments from outside the church. It's another thing to hear them from the pulpit. And to hear them from people who claim to be Christian. Now, they'll never come out and say it that way, but they will demur when it comes to the the absolute sovereignty of God and the fact that He is in control of both the good and the bad. And somehow they'll want to punt on that reality. Matthew Henry says, Though we may pour out our complaints before God, we must never exhibit any complaint against God. Isn't it a joy that we can come before Him when we are suffering and when we are hurting and we can speak boldly. And we see that all throughout the Psalter. The psalmist speaks boldly about his frame wasting away, his bones aching, the the difficulty of the sin that he is weighing down on him. But, But there is never an accusation that God is the problem. You all gave me for my 10th anniversary a six-volume commentary from Thomas Scott. And you may live to regret that. But here's the first of a of, of wonderful quotation from Scott's work on Lamentations. He says, As all sinners deserve death and destruction and are exposed to be crushed every moment, so none whose life is prolonged, who is out of hell and may hope of heaven, has either the right or the reason to complain while suffering the temporal punishment for his sin, which is far less than he deserves. Think about the sufferings of the people of Jerusalem in this chapter and how horrific they are to you and I as we read them these many years off. But we need to hear what Scott is saying. What we see in these passages is far less than what they deserve. He goes on, as long as men are on this side of the grave, they ought to be thankful for having an opportunity given to them for repentance. Isn't that fantastic? We are all owed the absolute wrath of Almighty God, and yet we breathe air today. And why? God has given us both the good and the bad in our lives? And has He given us the time just to fritter away complaining about those things? Or is there a greater purpose? And hear my contention to you that the meat of this text, I think, is that Jeremiah wants this doctrine of God's sovereignty to lead somewhere in verses 40 through 42. Again, this isn't just doctrine for doctrinal sake. Now, I think it's interesting that when you begin to speak about the absolute sovereignty of God, that is that God knows and sanctions all that come to pass in our lives, that one of the immediate rebuttals to the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty, and we'll dip into open theism in different ways to get around it, is... Often, I I find in conservative circles, and I've heard this in the context of our church in many ways, is, well, if that's true, if God is ultimately sovereign over everything, if He has determined the ends from the beginning, then ultimately what we do doesn't matter. And if you preach that doctrine, then what will end up happening is people will no longer take a sense of their own moral culpability seriously, and they will, in fact, turn to lawlessness. If our salvation is completely of God, nothing left to us, then that just issues forth in nothing but antinomianism, being against the law. If God rules supremely and sovereignly over us, then everything that happens is His fault, not ours. Well, friends, the Bible doesn't teach an odd spin on fatalism, and that's what that articulation really is. I want us to keep in mind that God will and has said that He will punish every sin. He's not morally responsible. But I think the most breathtaking thing as I came to these, these verses 40 through 42 is this. That the argument time and time again that I've heard is if God is ultimately sovereign in my salvation from beginning to end, 
then somehow I'm not morally responsible. And then somehow God is just not going to deal with all of this. It's funny because Jeremiah's argument in applying the sovereignty of God is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the converse of that argument. Because the application of verses 40 through 42 is this God is sovereign. Repent and believe. Turn back to Him. Live in a way that is pleasing to Him. As it turns out, if God is not absolutely sovereign in all things, there's no reason to repent. But because He is absolutely sovereign in all things, in every moment of our life, at every breath that we take, we should have a reminder, repent and believe. Friends, I would that every one of our hearts would have upon it inscribed the words repent and believe in such a fashion that every time we feel the beating of our heart, we are reminded that it is our joy and our duty in light of the cross of Christ to repent and believe. To turn from our sin because our God is sovereign. And because of that declaration, He will deal with sin and there is not an ounce of our rebellion against Him that will go unnoticed or unpunished. So for all of those moderns who would say the sovereignty of God leads to antinomianism, I would say you're not understanding the sovereignty of God. Because the application Jeremiah gives of the absolute sovereignty of God is that it causes the people of God to turn back to God. Thomas Watson goes on. He defines repentance as a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. He would say, sovereignly God grants repentance inwardly that our heart is changed and then outwardly our lives manifest godliness differently. He, he says that, that, that repentance is spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. Here they are for my note takers. I'll say them twice and I'll try to be slow. Sight of sin. Sorrow for sin. Confession of sin. Shame for sin, hatred for sin, and a turning from sin. Again, the six ingredients that Thomas Watson gives are the sight of sin, the sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, and a turning from sin. And friends, as we think about our own conversion and coming to Christ... There's so much of that that we experience. Isn't the regenerating work of God to bring us to an understanding that we begin to see sin for sin's ugly sake? And we see it for what it is. That we sorrow over it because we know that it has added to the sufferings of Christ. And so we confess with our mouth that the reality that we need Christ to cover all of our sin. And we are ashamed of what we have done that would cause the sufferings of Christ. And we ultimately grow in hating our sin and in turning from it. You see, what we need to realize, and this is the problem for I think most Armenians, is that they believe that repentance is a work. I believe repentance is a grace. Repentance is in fact a gift of a sovereign God. And isn't that a joy? Because if it is a work, then you better start working harder. And if you begin to understand the holiness of God you better work even harder. And if you understand the eternal weight of God's holiness, then you will come to the end of yourself and realizing you don't have enough energy in 15 lifetimes to work out enough repentance. But oh my friend, when we understand that it is a grace wrought by Almighty God, then we can say, thank you, Lord. And we can yield to His Spirit's working in actually living in light of the repentance that He has given us. And here's the joy this morning. 
he has enumerated here what it looks like to actually repent. The first thing that we are to do is found in verse 40. We are to examine ourselves. And there are two verbs here that matter in verse 40. Test and examine. Testing has the idea of digging down into, to look for what is hidden. It's like if, you, if any of you are as cultured as I am and watch Gold Rush on, I think it's the Disney Channel, you know. Uh, they dig down deep to see, is there gold in here, is there not? And what, what here um, Jeremiah is telling us is you might not see on the surface, surface sin. And often in our spiritual lives we get so crusty on the surface that we're good at hiding what's going on beneath. But he's saying dig down, test yourselves, examine yourself, see if inside of you there is really a, a, a hidden fault, something that would be displeasing to God. It's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, when the people of God, when God charges them and He says, you have profaned my name, what is their response? Wherein have we profaned your name? Do you see, see the issue there? They haven't examined themselves. They haven't come to realize they've left the Word of God. And if you were to ask most of these people that are being hauled off to Babylon in this context, most of them would go, why is the nation under attack? Because they didn't understood that they didn't understand that they had left the word of God. So testing matters. It's an important verb. Also examine, and that gives more of the idea to explore and become thoroughly acquainted with an object. Like going throughout a city. You know, when Sarah and I showed up here ten years ago, we couldn't figure out how to get around this town to save our lives. Uh, one street will turn into another for no apparent reason. And then it'll come to an abrupt stop, again, for no apparent reason. But as we have examined the city and are living here for so long, we have become acquainted with it, and we, now we even know how to tell friends the easiest way to get from point A to point B. And, and that's what, the, what Jeremiah here is encouraging the people to do. Both test and examine yourselves so that you might know you, your own frame before the living God. Now, here's the spiritual reality for all of us, and that is that we... We don't want to do that. What we naturally want to do to figure out whether or not we're sinful or not is compare ourselves among ourselves. You know, if I can just, if I can just consider myself in light of who Brian is, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. If Brian compares himself to Jay, he's probably feeling even better. Because what we are doing is comparing two fallen, wretched sinners who both in their own unique way despise God and run from His statue. And we also have this uncanny ability to just encourage one another in our sin without even knowing it. Oh, brother, I've experienced that too. Go on, it'll be okay. But when we really do the work of what verse 40 is insinuating here, we realize that self-examination doesn't come apart from the work of the Spirit. That we are dependent upon Him to search us out and to reveal to us who we really are. And when He does that work, the Holy Spirit has been called the most humble of the three persons in the Godhead because He always points to, back to Christ. And so when the Spirit of God applies this testing and this examination to our hearts, what He will do is He will never point you back to Brian. He will always point you to Christ. And that comparative work that the Spirit of God does in you will issue forward in conviction. That we fall far short of the glory of God. And friends, I believe this is one of the greatest departures of modern evangelicalism. Because we are so smiley and so happy on Sunday morning and we wouldn't want you to feel the weight of conviction. That, that's not the purpose of... Yes, it is! Why is it that generations of men and women have come under the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God and it is issued out in the form of conviction and we think we somehow have figured out a better way? We may have figured out a better way to fill the coffers of a given 
organization that calls itself a church, but we haven't figured out a better way of becoming Christ-like than the convicting power through self-examination of Almighty God. So then he goes on in in verse 40 to tell us the second step, and that is to return to the Lord. Let us return to the Lord, he says. Let us test, let us examine, and then return to the Lord. You'll remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, worldly repentance, produces death. And so returning to the Lord then is the difference between real and feigned repentance. What we find in the second part, examine yourself, test yourself, and then return to the Lord. The preposition there to return to the Lord, if we, if, if, if we misunderstand this, I think what we will think is examine, test, and then kind of turn in the Lord's direction and just shuffle our feet for the rest of our lives. But the weight of the text really is saying, test yourself under the Spirit of God, examine yourself, and then turn to the Lord. And the idea is not to stop one short of being all the way home in glory. Don't stop short of being Christ-like. Continue on. Press forward. Keep doing the work. Now, are you going to get there all throughout your life? No. But with that final breath that you breathe, the two will become a reality and a glorious one at that. You will have finally come home, not just to the place of being before the Lord, but being fully redeemed and glorified in Him. And then, and then he goes on to say in verse 41, encourage us in our repentance that we are to earnestly pray. Lift, lift, excuse me, let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Friends, it's interesting to think of this verse in, in light of verse 28. Look at verse 28. It's good, verse 27, for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him set alone in silence when, he is, when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may be hope. And then in verse 41, let us lift up our hearts and our hands. Do you see the difference between those verses? We live in the dirt. We are creatures of the earth. We have profaned the name of God and it is good for us to have to reckon with the reality of who we are and to suffer in light of our sins that we might turn from our sin to God. And the glorious reality is through the blood of Christ that we can, we can commune with and we can speak to the holy God of heaven. We are in the dirt, but He is on the throne. And the encouragement in our repentance that Jeremiah gives us is go boldly before that throne. Deal with what it is that He has revealed to you in your testing and in your examining. Later on, Jeremiah will acknowledge that he feels like he's in a prison Thomas Scott says rightly that he comes out of that prison in prayer to God. Listen to Scott's words. Yet out of this low dungeon, he had called upon the Lord. He had pleaded with him that he had heretofore heard his voice and entreated him that he would not now hide his ears from his sighs and the breathings of his soul in prayer. What he's telling us is that we must seek the Lord and His forgiveness which leads to the next part of our, our repentance. Look at verse 42 with me. We have transgressed and rebelled. He has told us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to return to the Lord, to pray earnestly, and now He tells us to cry out in confession of our sin that we have transgressed and rebelled. And what's interesting is this is in the perfect tense. That is that it has happened in times past and it's continuing on. The nation has been sinning for so long and it's so commonplace that they, haven't, they, they have no frame of reference to understand their own sin. Oh friends, 
Do you not see that we as a people can be so blind to our sin, so willing to count it as nothing to the point that a sovereign God ultimately has to bring judgment upon an entire nation? We can so self-deceive ourselves, we don't need to confess. We're God's people. Does that sound familiar in this place? Friends, we need, to, we need to confess our sin every moment. Do you remember the two returned to the Lord? And the implication of that preposition not being to stop before you get to Jesus? I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. We won't have a time of confession in this church as soon as one of you becomes completely Christ-like. Just come to my office and let me know that's taken place. And we'll cancel the confession from that time forth forevermore. But until then, we need, friends, we need to come before the Lord examining ourselves, testing ourselves, returning to the Lord, praying fervently. I hope we never go through our time of confession with, a, with just a repetitious ho-hum, here we are on another Sunday heart. But that we come before the living God earnestly begging for the blood of Christ to be applied afresh and anew to our rebellion. To our sin. Friends, I used to think that the worst thing that could ever happen to a church is that people would leave. I used to think that the worst thing that could ever happen to a pastor is he would be fired. I used to think that the, 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 the worst sense of ministry failure would come through not being able to do all of the outward things that so many of my friends have done in ministry with buildings and projects and things like that. But I've grown to understand that, that the worst Worst failures in ministry are this. To build grand buildings. To fill auditoriums. To have large coffers. And yet, to never spend time looking to the Lord. I've grown to understand that, that, that the worst way to spend our lives is to spend a lifetime saying that we love Jesus, saying that we're thankful for the blood of the Lamb, singing about His amazing grace, but never really examining ourselves, never truly turning to Christ, never earnestly wrestling with God, never confessing our sins to the, to the Lord. Because in, in failing to do those things, we ultimately make a mockery of His work. But it's only then that that when we come to the ingredients of the spiritual medicine of, listen, the painful gift of repentance, that we really bring glory to Him. That when, when, When we experience the reality that we can begin to see our sin after having examined ourselves, that we sorrow over that sin, that we confess that sin, that we have shame for our sin, and ultimately we hate our sin in such a way That we turn from it and seek no longer to return. That we become people thankful for that fountain that Top Lady and Zechariah both speak of. You'll remember in chapter 13 of Zechariah, he says, On that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. And that is where we get the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. And do you get the import of that song? I love singing it with you all. Do you understand where it goes? It's not there is a fountain filled with blood so that we can come live in licentiousness and continue to sin and just lap the blood of Christ over our sins. Now in a sense, there is, we have never, our sin has never exhausted the, the glorious, redemptive efficacy of the blood of Christ. And I want you to understand that. But listen to where the song goes. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. 
Genuine repentance doesn't lead us to giving lip service that, yeah, we're sinners and continuing to live in the same way. Genuine repentance causes us to hate our sin in such a fashion that we turn from it. Thomas Watson here says, helpfully, some run from the confession of sin to the committing of sin. They run from the tears of agonizing over their sin to going right back to their own foolishness and folly. We need not only to examine ourselves, to turn to Christ, to pray fervently, and to confess that we truly have sought to flee from our sin. And then we see this this interesting end of verse, and I've got to deal with it, verse 42, you have not forgiven. I think we would walk away and think, okay, so so we, we examine, we test, we return to the Lord, We pray fervently, we confess our sin, and then He doesn't forgive us. What is being said here is that, that ultimately God has not forgiven because none of those preceding things were a reality for the nation. They weren't praying fervently. They weren't confessing their sin. They weren't examining themselves. They had completely left the Word of God, and so they were brought to a point where God had not forgiven their sin because they had lived in them. So does God... Forgive us when we confess our sins. And the answer to that is yes and amen. I've got to be done here quickly. So the question comes in light of that forgiveness. Then does does God remove the consequence? And Jeremiah would say, look around in verses 43 through 54. What he is doing here is he is giving us the picture of what it means to have the judgment of God again enumerated against His people. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the people. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of the city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. These three images that are given here, the the drowning person, the imprisoned man, the the one who was hunted. And, And the question is, If the nation is hunted and imprisoned and drowning, what is it drowning in? And the answer to that question is this. The false notions of fallen man. What what ultimately is the reality for the nation is they are no no longer living under the weight of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, but they are living in what seems right in their own eyes. And I would, just con- I would just contend this this morning. Those three images of one hunted like a bird, one thrown into a pit where they can't get out, one who is ultimately overwhelmed, drowning in water, are, bo- are all three uh, wonderful, horrible images of what it means to be sinful. What it means to be a fallen human being. We were, were hunted down in our own sin and overwhelmed. We were thrown into the dungeon and couldn't escape. We were overwhelmed, drowning in our own depravity, and only God could res- rescue us. And so the question comes, can we complain against God? Can, can we say, God, when you judge us like you've judged the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, can we complain? And the answer is no. Because that would be like an individual drinking poison and then blaming God for not rescuing him from the poison that he drank. And here's the reality. Don't buy into preachers who tell you, well, you're pretty good and given enough time you'll figure this out. You're not an individual that would really drink down the poison of sin. You wouldn't do that. Now, we're more like at the Super Bowl, you know, at the end, the winning, uh, winning team's uh, coach on the sidelines gets drenched with the entire bucket of Gatorade. That's our sin life. 
Like, and we have joyfully welcomed being drenched in it. That's who we are. That's the circumstance. And so can we complain? And the answer is no. Look at verse 50 though. Because in light of all of the difficulty of the spiritual reality, and friend, if you've ever come to a point, and I hope that you have, of weeping over the reality of the sins of our own nation, seeing the overwhelming reality of life sometime in such a way that you feel even lost being in Christ, I want you to consider verse 50. Yes, this world seems dark. It seems like there is no hope for things to turn around. But there is this one glimmer of hope in verse 50. Until the Lord looks from heaven, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. Everything is hopeful until verse 50. Until God looks down, it seems hopeless. Unless the, until the Lord looks down from heaven, our works are lost. Our efforts are nothing. Our sins overwhelm. Our strength comes to nothing. Our cries go unheard. Our fortunes are brought low. Our praise is hollow. Our church movements are ineffective. But the joy of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 50 is this. It only takes one look. It only takes one glance from the King of glory to change everything. The psalmist in Psalm 80 says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let Your face shine that we may be saved. Turn in your Bible quickly. No, I'm going over today. Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Thinking about the reality that we are all drowning in our own sin. Drowning in the reality that our nation has left the Word of God. Imprisoned in the thoughts and syllabubs of so many people and their fallen thinking. To the point that we feel that all is lost. But then being reminded it only takes one look from the sovereign King of Heaven to change everything. And I want us to consider that one look in the face of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in light of the Gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writing here says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The joy that Jeremiah has in Lamentations chapter 3 is that he knows that everything hinges upon God. That the hope and the longing found in Jeremiah 3 is that God will intervene and He will rescue His people. He will forgive their sins. He will restore fellowship with them. He will wipe away their tears. And He will comfort them. And beloved, this morning in light of the weight of this lament, our joy is the God who has done all of this for, has, has done all of this for us in light of what Paul here calls the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have so many reasons to lament this morning. But one look from heaven, from the Lord Jesus Christ in sending His Son to atone for the penalty for our sin gives us all the more reason to rejoice. All the more reason to return to the Word of God. I want you to see one thing in closing here. Do you remember what the problem is in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 18? The Lord is right, for I have rebelled against His Word. 
The people of God had left the Word of God. And, and Jeremiah says, but it only takes one look. And so in verse 2, Paul says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Do you see the solution for the people of God in every age, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is to return to the Word of God to behold the glories of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you feel like the, the clouds have gathered in our day, and that our circumstance looks bleak politically, sociologically, economically, ecclesiastically, in all of those veins, if you feel hopeless, know that there is one answer, and that is a look from heaven through the Word of God into the eyes of the glory of the person of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence in this hour so thankful to know that you give the gift of repentance you give it by the work of Your Spirit. We, we don't do it in our own right. And so, Father, You call us to examine and to, to test ourselves, to return to You, to pray fervently and to confess our sins. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't be fooled into thinking that's an exercise only for our gathered worship, but that week in and week out, day in and day out, moment by moment, we would be believers considering the glorious nature of the sacrifice of Christ and the weight of our sin. And that we would continually confess our sins before You, knowing that it takes but one look from Your throne to heal us, to restore us, to forgive us, and to build Your kingdom anew. Father, would You do that work in 